Something sad happened in our world in about a month ago that uh, you might not have been aware of, but it caught a lot of people in our culture and kind of took them down a little bit. Now, you might have missed this, but uh, just about a month ago, it seems that the storybook marriage between Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie is coming to a crashing end. Now, if you're not bothered by this, fine. But if you are, I do have good news. If this sent you into some sort of a spiral of sadness and despair, you are not alone. And we know this because Twitter responded. Let's take a look at a couple of the things people said in response to this. Now, here's a person. First of all, I appreciate the, uh, the screen name here, the, the, the handle. That's pretty funny. So he may have a sense of humor. He says, RIP, hashtag Brangelina, 2016 has gone too far this time. <laughs> That's kind of tame. Let's look at a couple more. Here's a, here's a girl who finds herself struggling. If Brangelina is dead, then I don't believe in true love anymore. Yeah. Yeah, she's not alone either, though. Take a look at this next one. If Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt can't make it, what makes you think we can? I've lost all hope. Hashtag goodbye, cruel world. Uh, also, though, this next person has a similar message, but in all caps. If there is no hope for Brangelina, there is no hope for anyone, right? And the final one. We'll always remember exactly where we were when the Brangelina news broke. This is actual footage of me returning to my desk two minutes ago. No, we won't, actually. But thanks for the awkward video. And I don't mean to make light of what truly is a sad situation in the lives of two real people. No question, no question. But um, people put their trust in some strange things. Also, don't know if you know this, but we have an election coming up soon here in America. <clears throat> so here's what I'd like for you to do for me, if you could. Here in a second, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to let out a sound, okay? Uh, you get to pick the sound, but I want the sound to represent what you think is the current mood of the American people with respect to this upcoming election. Can you do that for me? So uh, whatever it may be, we'll see what's coming. Are you ready? One, two, three. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. So I was in the uh, I was in the auto shop the other day. This is probably a few weeks ago, and I'm waiting for my car to get fixed. So I'm in the waiting area, and a couple of other people in there. This lady asked me if she can have a newspaper. It's sitting over by me on a chair. She says, "I like to know what's going on in the world. I don't know why, but I like to know." Sure, no problem. Hand her the paper. About the time I hand her the paper, this other lady in the waiting room says, "Well, I just try to ignore the crazy." And then positivity is best. Was what she said, right? So whatever. Uh, and this other lady, the paper, she sits down, she agrees with the woman who says positivity best, never opens the paper, and then they proceed, I'm not making this up, they proceed to have a conversation about which is worse, spoiled cats or wild chickens. <laughs> I think to myself, so we are talking about the election. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I got a question for you, and if you know the answer, then don't ruin it for those who don't. Here's a question. If, uh, if Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were stranded on a desert island, who survives? America. My favorite I've heard, someone on Facebook said this. I don't think America should elect a president in 2016. I think we need to be single for a while. <laughs> Just going to find ourselves when we get into another committed relationship, you know. Of course, I probably can't complain too much. I'm the one that just started to quote in a sermon with the words someone on Facebook said. So I'm not sure I'm guilty in some of these things. Uh, some people are pretty bothered by this, as you obviously can see. Some people are anxious. Some people are freaking out, man. If Hillary wins, then literally evil will prosper. 
If Donald Trump wins, then, then I'm leaving the country. Man, people put their trust in some strange things. And we're going to spend the next few weeks studying the book of Daniel together. We're beginning this series, In God We Trust. We're unpacking this book. And today what we're going to try to do with our time is orient ourselves to the main emphasis of this book and its relevance to our time. A little backstory: story. Uh, Daniel uh, was a person who belonged to God's people and he was living in a world that was undergoing a process of radical change and not necessarily for the better. And uh, he was an Israelite living at the time when Babylon took God's people captive and they ushered God's story into the last phase of the Old Testament narrative, exile. He was a worshiper of God living in a pagan land. And that meant that his life was characterized by a certain tension between the little king that ruled the country he now called home and the big king that ruled the universe. And his story is going to show us how to maintain a stable faith while the ground beneath us refuses to stay still. I think its relevance is obvious. And we're going to look at how, be looking at how to display uh, our trust in him by looking at some various topics like how to discern his will and how to stand with his people and fearing his judgment and seeking his face and remembering his promise. That's where we're headed. Here's where we're starting. Trust his sovereignty. That's where we begin. Trust his sovereignty. And starting with the sovereignty of God was not a hard decision to make. You ever read the book of Daniel? I mean, this book that God inspired to reveal things about himself draws frequent and repeated attention to his sovereignty. The stories in the early part of the book sort of bear this out in narrative form. And then when we get to chapter 4, we start to see this repeated statement that I think summarizes for us something of the main thrust of the book. Let's look at it a couple of times. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets sets over them the lowliest of people. Again, in verse 25, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Same words in verse 32. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone as he wishes. One more time, chapter 5, verse 21. It says, He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And this statement is continued in the theme of the story as God's sovereignty is borne out in narrative as well as vision form. This book is about sovereignty. There's two key words in the book of Daniel that help us think about what this thing means. The first one is this Hebrew word shalit, and it's translated most often sovereign. So when you see the word sovereign, it's usually this word. It's used ten times in the Old Testament. Eight of them are here in Daniel. And the word just kind of means to to rule over something, or to have mastery over something, to run something. It basically refers to the ability to get done what you want to get done. Shalit, ruling, mastery, running things, reigning. A second word that comes up a lot in Daniel that's relevant for our purposes is this word Eliah or Eli. It's a word that's used ten times in the Old Testament. All of them are in Daniel. Uh, Once it's translated sovereign, the other nine times it's translated most high, as in most high God. That's actually the most common name for God in the book of Daniel, the most high. So yeah, if Daniel is any kind of guide to thinking Christianly about politics, and it is, then God's sovereignty belongs at the foundation of your political outlook, whatever that may be. But even outside this particular issue of politics, starting with God's sovereignty was not a hard decision to make. (laughs) 
You ever tried to live a stable life in an unstable world? Dallas Willard talks about the, the, the popular question, if you died tonight, where would you go? I think it's an underrated question for the record, at least in our day. But he talks about how it's a good question, but not the only one. What if also, in addition, we asked a question like this. If you don't die tonight, what are you going to do when you wake up in the morning? How are you going to live in a world where you can count on very little to always go your way? How are you going to navigate the pressures of school, friendship, family, ministry, career, and so on? I mean, bills got to get paid. Mouths got to get fed. Sermons got to get preached. Scholarships got to be kept, or so it seems. And I need y'all to understand this, because if you think what I'm saying today is just about politics, trust me, you're wrong. For me, politics and political chaos, the current moment that we're in, just provides a good excuse to talk about something that touches every part of you. A couple weeks ago, Howie was here, and I loved the time he was here. I loved the sermon he preached to us. And he he raised a couple of things in my mind. I remember this one time in the sermon, he asked the question, what would an 80-year-old you say to a 20-year-old you? And the answer for me was immediate. There's probably three or four things that came to mind. Near the top of the list, God's got this. He's sovereign. I'm not kidding. This is what I would say to myself at 20, and this is what I'm happy to say to you. Is literally what an 80-year-old man said to me a month ago at church. He's this older guy in our church. He's a friend of mine. He sort of comes up and checks in with me periodically and gives me updates on how things are going. He, he's in a rough spot. And the day he came up to me, he had had a rough week. He's already got a heart disease. He suffers from sleep apnea. And he just discovered that he had a lung disease. What do you say, you know? I didn't have to say anything. And trust me, he wasn't being trite in what he said to me. He said, it's a good thing God is sovereign. He said, you see, Michael, when you've got a sovereign God, you're good. I said, amen. I found him two days ago and I was like, hey man, I just want to say thanks for saying that. I've been geeking about it ever since. And he just started laughing at me. He's like, well, still true. And then he walked away, you know. (laughs) That's what I want to be when I grow up. You know what I'm saying? And trust me, listen, what we want for you here at Ozark is actually pretty simple. We want you to arrange your life in such a way that trust and faith and peace and joy just sort of happen. That trusting God and enjoying him becomes second nature to you. So that when tragedy interrupts, or when failure pays a visit, or when you find that sadness wakes you up at night, or fear keeps you from falling asleep, when those moments come, and they will, you'll be fine. That's our vision for you. Wouldn't that be awesome? We can see it too. I can see I can see you. Not always, but I can see through sometimes and see the in Christ version of you. And you're unbendable, unbreakable. You really are unshakable because you're filled with this unmistakable power that starts down deep in your soul and stretches out to touch every part of your heart. This is what's happening in your lives because this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Man, some of y'all have to deal with some junk too. I hear your stories because you tell them, you write them, you show them, you share them. And I think about some of the stuff that y'all have to deal with. Some of the pain, some of the pressures in your presence and in your past. And it breaks my heart to be honest with you. But I'm not worried. Because when you got a sovereign God, you're good. This can become your song. And meditating on God's sovereignty will do a lot to get you there. So let's talk about this word sovereignty. Let's, let's get a definition. What is this? Seems like that's a relevant question if we're going to try to understand what this means and how to live in light of it. So what is sovereignty? I do think I can give you a pretty simple definition. Five words, and then we'll break it out a couple of ways. If I had to summarize God's sovereignty in five words, these would be the five. Only God rules the world. That's it. Only God rules the world. That's God's sovereignty in five words. Only God rules the world. Let's start with the bulk of it. God rules the world. 
This is that shalit word that we find in Daniel. He providentially arranges things. He makes plans and then he successfully carries them out. And in the case of the book of Daniel and world politics, the kind of things happening in Daniel, who gets elected does not stop God from accomplishing his purposes. He oversees things so that his will is ultimately done. Now what this doesn't mean, to make sure we're clear, is that he meticulously controls every little detail. What this doesn't mean is that God micromanages everything. Rather, it means he can redeem anything. It's not everything happens for a reason. We remember it's anything can be redeemed because that's how big God is. So sovereignty does not mean that God controls every detail and plans every pain. It means that God brings good things out of good things and God brings good things out of bad things. He's always working to bring good out of everything. That's where sovereignty begins. And so we might call this part of it successful plans as we break this down. He, he, he makes successful plans and then he sees to it that they happen. Good plans puts them into practice. And he's able to do this because of the second facet of his sovereignty. In addition to successful plans, we look at his superior power. It's not just God rules the world. It's only God rules the world. No one is smarter or stronger than him. No one can defeat him. Who's in charge here? That's the question sovereignty answers. Who's at the top of the chain? That's the question sovereignty answers. God is. He is the Eli, the most high God, the one at the top. He's peerless. He's without equal and no one can stand up to him. No competitor is evenly matched. He's God of gods. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. So to say that God is sovereign is to say, simply put, that only God rules the world. He executes successful plans because of his superior power. Let's try to get some analogies as we think about this. So we look at certain people in certain situations, and you just kind of know you can guarantee success. You know what I mean? You can just kind of tell. So I don't know where he is. If Terry Bowling challenges me to a weightlifting competition, you can pretty much just guarantee I'm not going. I'm going to go home in second place. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what's going to happen. Why? Because you look at the man and you realize he's got qualities and abilities that are necessary to the situation. Therefore, you can guarantee he's going to be all right. He's going to win. Or you see this sometimes in our context, right? You see some guys with some girls and you just know like it's going to work. You know what I'm saying? Like he's going to, he's just going to say yes. You can just tell. I don't know why. Maybe there's any sort of number of reasons. But he's got qualities appropriate to the situation. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she just likes guys with the last name Trotter. I have no idea what it might be. It could be anything. Or maybe... I mean, yeah, see, maybe she's into guys who wear really tight pants. Some of y'all are hoping for that one, you know, and you're looking going, she likes guys with super tight pants. She's clearly wearing super tight pants. It's going to work out all right. You know, it seems, seems to me like a lot of y'all fellas are banking on finding girls that are really into gym shorts and wrinkled t-shirts. I'm going to pray for you. I pray for you. But back to the point, you get it. So we look at certain situations and we say, this person is going to be successful because they've got qualities that are adequate to the task in front of them. They've got abilities that are appropriate to the situation that is going to enable them to be all right, to be fine. And when we speak of God's sovereignty, this is the kind of statement we're saying, except that we're backing up and we're saying this about all of it, about all of history, about the whole universe, about everything. One more way to think about it. So, I don't know if y'all know this, but I got a couple of kids. I probably ought to talk about them a little bit more than I do, right? So I got a daughter, Claire's apple of my eye. I got a son, Carson, who is the man, and he's in the room. 
And uh, I remember, I like to watch them whenever they don't know that you're watching them because you really kind of see what's going on in their heart and in their mind. And a while back when Carson was a little bit younger, he had these two favorite dolls, these animals, and he took them with him everywhere. There was a little lion that was about that big, and then there was a little bear that was a little bit smaller, about that big. And he'd just sleep and wake everywhere in the car, the park. He'd, he'd want to have his lion and his bear, you know, and he'd play little games with them. And I remember watching one time, he didn't know anybody was looking at him, but I remember watching one time, and I I think he was, well, I don't think, he was playing father and son, right? So I'm clued into this. And he takes the lion and he puts the lion's little, little uh, arm, little fabric arm around the bear. And the lion says to the bear, it's okay. I got you. He said, you're my son. I got this. And if I could summarize for you God's sovereignty in three words, he's got this. He's got this. Yeah. Whatever this is for you, whatever is happening in your mind or your body or your story or your family or your community, he's got this. Nothing can happen to you that God cannot redeem. Nothing can happen to us that God cannot redeem. No action you take, no mistake you make, no sin you commit or which is committed against you can stop him. No evil in this world can take place that God cannot turn around and weave into his good, good plan. That's what we mean when we say only God rules the world. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. Now, from a practical standpoint, the rest of our series together is going to break down for us how to respond appropriately to this truth. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things. For my part, the main thing I want you to do is just get the sovereignty of God in your mind and keep it there. Like, hold up, you know, stay there with it for a while. But I do have a couple of practical suggestions that I want to lay out for us as we move along this path of trusting Him. And the first one is this. Stop demanding that God do things your way. If God is sovereign, stop demanding that God do things your way. About a week ago, I got a text from a student here. Here's what he said. He said, hey, quick thought I want to run by you. Is complaining a form of self-worship and self-service? For example, saying, I'm better than this, or I shouldn't have to deal with this. This is one of the easier questions I've gotten in a while. Yep, sinned. <laughs> Again, is complaining a form of self-worship and self-service? For example, saying, I'm better than this, or I shouldn't have to deal with this. Absolutely. Only God rules the world, which means you don't. (laughs) Like, you're not God. It's not your ministry, it's His. It's not your church, it's His. It's not your school, it's His. It's not your life, it's His. He is I am. Do you remember convocation? And therefore, you are I am not. So stop tripping up on this. Like, stop acting like you're supposed to always get what you want when you want it. Stop pretending or treating God as if he's some sort of a genie in a bottle whose primary job is to grant you wishes. No. Stop demanding that God do things your way. Number two, stop trying to control outcomes. Stop trying to make things turn out right. And if there's one thing that concerns me about you guys, it's the stuff that your soul needs in order to feel okay. Getting good grades preaching good sermons, being productive, being the one people come to for help, making people laugh, making people cry, getting positions or titles or praise from the right people, getting a job at a big church or at least a cool small hipster one, you know? People put their trust in some strange things. And this is why it's so hard for y'all to really rest. You're too busy trying to convince yourself that you're important by living up to some goofy standard that God never laid across your shoulders. You are not called to make things turn out right. Only God rules the world, which means you don't have to. Pressure's off. So sit and stay as you just sung. Sit and stay and let Him do what He does. 
I can't think of a single time in Scripture when one of God's servants is expected to control an outcome. God doesn't say, go win the war. He says, step onto the battlefield and watch me do my thing. And Jesus doesn't say to you, go compare to everybody. He says, point him in my direction and then get out of the way. And don't be surprised or dejected when they reject us because it's all good. I'm still me. Now, I'm not saying I don't want you all to work hard. And I'm not saying I don't want you to pursue effectiveness. Not at all. I want you to work harder than everybody. And I want you to pursue effectiveness with everything in you. But when the time comes to take a break, I want you to take a break, man. Because you are not frantically trying to control the results. Because you know that God is in control. And when your efforts don't work or succeed because they won't always work or succeed, I want you to shake the dust off, be okay, and march on. I want you to work from a place of soul rest because you know, you operate, you work from the knowledge that there is a God, that He's sovereign, that He's got this. Stop trying to control outcomes. And number three, stop worrying. Stop worrying. About everything. Everything. Everybody say everything. Everything. Stop worrying about everything. Stop worrying about the big scary moments. And stop worrying about the small boring ones too. You know, I remember the last time half of American Christianity was freaking out about an election. It wasn't that long ago. It was 2008. I remember that fall, one of my good friends at the church, one of the most stable, level-headed, solid dudes I've known. He calls me up one day and he asks if we can do lunch. Sure, no problem, we do this all the time, but he sounds panicked. Like he sounds like something's clearly wrong, so I'm worried about him. So I'm praying about this guy on the way to the restaurant, and I pull up and I can see as soon as we sit down at the table that he is bothered. And he starts, I don't even say anything, he just starts, says, I'm, I'm scared, man, I'm scared. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on, man? Did your business fold? Like, heaven forbid, did you do something dumb and, like, mess up your family? Something happened to one of your kids? What's up, I asked. And I got a one-word answer. Obama. (laughs) No, I don't care what you think about Obama. That's not the point of what I'm saying. And hear me well, I was sitting across the table from a good man. He's not the kind of guy that's easy to caricature. He loves his family. He's faithful to the church. He reads his Bible. He serves God. And he was being totally ridiculous. I wanted to say to him in that moment, like, bro, did you forget about Psalm chapter 2? Where we're told that the nations are always going to be conspiring against God. And that when God sees this, he looks down and he laughs at them. Like, that's how not bothered he is by this. Has it been a while since you read Psalm 46? We love the end, be still and know that I'm God. Don't forget the beginning. When we read that God is our refuge and help in times of trouble, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way. Think about this. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Later in the psalm, he acknowledges that nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. You know what the next line is? He lifts his voice. The earth melts. He's not afraid. Has it been a while since you read Isaiah 40 and got God's perspective on the nations? Because he says they're kind of like drops in the bucket. He's not worried about it. People talk about if so-and-so is elected, I'm leaving the country. Are you serious? Now, if you want to move somewhere because people in Japan need Jesus, bye. We'll see you later. You know what I'm saying? But not because of this. Now, you believe in a God who laughs at the pretentious plans of the self-described great and powerful. He ain't bothered by these things. And have we forgotten that we are a people, we are a people commanded to not be anxious about anything. To never be afraid. Realize, I know you've been taught this, realize that every command in scripture is rooted in who God is. Every time we, time we see a command, we should step back and ask the question, what is it about God that makes obedience to this command make sense? And in this case, why not be anxious? I mean, there's plenty to worry about if you look around. Okay, look up. 
And to look no further than Daniel, the reason why we never need to be anxious is because our God is to stay in Daniel alone, the revealer of mysteries, the God of gods and Lord of kings, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the King of heaven, the Lord of heaven, the living God, the God of Daniel, the ancient of days, the great and awesome God, Yahweh, a.k.a. the great I am. And do not forget the most common one, God most high. That's how God reveals himself. That's why you don't need to be afraid. You understand? Yeah, you understand that if you... If you knew God perfectly, you would be incapable of worry. Do you understand that? Like if you saw him clearly, anxiety would not be a possibility for your soul. And I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I'm trying to invite all of us to open our eyes and see that God possesses qualities and attributes that are up to the task, that are adequate to the situation. Nothing can stop him from ultimately succeeding. What qualities are these? Well, let's stay in Daniel again. Wisdom, power, and love. Two verses. Daniel 2.20 says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. Daniel 9.4 I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. God's sovereignty arises out of the interplay between His wisdom power and love. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. God's sovereignty arises out of the interplay between his wisdom, power, and love. Let's start at the back. Love. He's out to do you good. He means not to harm you, but to help you. He's for you. He wants to save you. Wisdom. He makes perfect goals and he selects the perfect paths to reaching those goals. He has all of the relevant information, knows how to process it perfectly, and therefore makes no mistakes. Power. He's able to do what needs to be done. God is so strong that the threat of chaos does not call into question his ability to bring order. He is so mighty that the odds are irrelevant to him. He is so powerful that no other power poses so much as a slight threat. No other authority puts him ill at ease. Once more, God's sovereignty arises out of the interplay of his eternal power, boundless love, and matchless wisdom. And in case you didn't catch this, in case you fear that I'm preaching a sermon about the nature of God without talking about the cross, nowhere else do we see this combination of power love and wisdom on such brilliant display nowhere else is his sovereignty more blindingly illuminated than when jesus stretched out his arms and died for every single one of us listen i don't know what's going to happen in the next four years or the next 40 generations i got no idea but i tell you what we won't do we won't panic we won't freak out we won't leave we won't shrink back and we won't lose heart we will not be afraid right why because the safety of our souls does not, is not dependent upon who sits in the Oval Office or behind any other desk for that matter. Because the safety of our souls relies on one thing alone. Whether God still sits on heaven's throne. He ain't going anywhere. So we're going to be fine. Amen? We're good. We're good. So do not listen to the voice of the enemy because the enemy says you got to get your candidate elected or we're going to be in trouble. And God says, trust me. The enemy says, listen, you got to measure up to a standard or God won't accept you. And God says, trust me. The enemy says, ministry's not for people like you. And God says, trust me. The world says horses and chariots, parties and presidents, perfect records and sparkling legacies, straight A's, big stages and talent to spare. We say, in God we trust. Sovereign Lord, you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And you called each one of us by name. You've invited us into your family and you have made us part of your mission. So empower us with boldness to speak and to act with power. May we rest in your sovereignty. May we never be afraid. In Jesus' name, amen.